1003. Joining me now from somewhere near Heartland, our good friend Al Bat. Hey, Al, is it raining over there? It is. We uh, we're just short of a half inch. Oh, rain nice here. So it yeah, it's kind of uh, cool. I'm seeing uh, large farm implements travel down the road by our place like giant prehistoric <laughs> critters, and uh, they need to. It's always interesting, and who's going to give when cars <laughs> meet these things? And some cars insist that they're going to go through. You know, I think you have to give way to size yeah. on these things. Uh, a wise car is going to pull over, I think, and let them go. But uh, people, uh, we're in a hurry, I guess. we got things to do. They, they were talking about theme songs. I think mine is Laurel and Hardy, The Flight of the Cuckoos. <laughs> it just uh, it kind of encapsulates my life. Uh, you know, whenever, wouldn't it be cool? I, I, uh, I was telling a friend the other day that if every time we thought about doing something dumb in our life, that the Laurel and Hardy theme song would play. And then you'd, <clears throat> you'd just know, you know, maybe this isn't a wise thing that we should be doing. I listened to a delightful Sparrow duet in the yard yesterday, Song and Vesper, and I watched a brown creeper creep brownly up trees. And brownly is a word. It's just, it means it's brown, I guess, when it climbs up that tree. And a yellow rump warbler was feeding on suet. Uh, there's still a team of juncos breaking the ground, and the, the birding life is good. I've welcomed female red-winged blackbirds to the yard. The males arrive on their breeding grounds oh, anywhere from a few days to a few weeks before the females return. And the females look like large sparrows, so they often go unnoticed. Oh. I saw one of your buddies, Karen, a meadow vole, just uh, who was running across uh, the, the road as I took the mail down today. It ran across our driveway. And these little guys, they may breed throughout the year, but uh, most commonly in spring and summer. And typically they have two to five litters per year. There's a gestation period of 20 to 23 days with a litter size three to six probably. And due to high mortality, an average 2.6, I think I read in one uh, study, uh, offspring are successfully weaned. The younger weaned at a time when they're 21 days old, so three weeks. And the females are sexually mature in 35 to 40 days. So the, one of the good things, you hate to wish this on anybody, but voles have short lifespans. Thank goodness. That generally <laughs> yeah, range from 2 to 16 months. And as I've often said, they are the potato chips of the prairie. If it weren't so, we would be overrun by voles. And I know some folks think, well, you already are being overrun. <clears throat> and a, a really cool thing yesterday that just made me stop and uh, stop what I was doing and just stare. I saw a red-headed woodpecker on a utility pole. And I see them here on the farm every year, but uh, I just love seeing them. Redheads were once so common that orchard owners actually paid bounties on them. And Audubon reported that 100 were shot from a single cherry tree in one day in 1840. This bird has experienced a 70% decline in population from 1966 to 2014. A big factor in the drop 
is a lack of dead trees in open oh. forest habitats in urban areas. Uh, the adults have these bright red heads, white underparts, and black backs with large white patches on the wings. I saw a great horned owl uh, a day or two ago at high noon, roused from its roost by enraged crows. This owl is crepuscular, meaning it prefers to hunt at dusk and dawn, but it isn't opposed to grabbing a meal at any time of the day. What appears to be ears are tufts of feathers called plumicorns, and great horned owls regularly eat skunks. Uh, owls don't have a keen sense <laughs> of smell, as Thank you might goodness. figure from that. Yeah. And all they know is a skunk is delicious. And I took a great horned owl to the Raptor Center at the University of Minnesota that had been hit by a car on the road. And it had been skunk hunting and was successful in that regard. And it, uh, oh, it was a real stinker. The trip to the Raptor Center in the company of a skunk owl, it was incredibly long. I, I never knew St. Paul was that far away. But and it's, it's so hard to get that smell out. <laughs> it's just a, it's bad thing. And you have a, a tale of sparrows. I do. Well, you know, you mentioned your, your juncles were raking. Well, when I looked out my window this morning into the hosta bed, uh, there were probably two dozen or more, I think they're sparrows, they look like little sparrows, and they were doing like a bull in a bull ring. You know how they take their front foot and they paw at the ground and they they bring up the the leaves and well in this case the sparrows the leaves and the pine needles and things and they were just tossing them in the air like they were throwing confetti you know except back you know toward their back end and i like well what are they doing are they looking for worms or insects or why were there like i said two dozen in my hosta bed it was it was sprinkling out so you know it was wet i know they can take dust dust baths and things so this wasn't dusty it was just you know kind of a leaf little small leaf particles and then of course the pine needles and things I put down for mulch so they were just like a big bull just uh, scratching and throwing it in the air so what were they doing they were uh, searching for food just like uh -huh. chickens would do scratching and doing that chicken scratch and the ones that I'm seeing I'm looking out my window now see what I've got out here it's a little tougher scratching now with the ground wet but I see a ground covered uh, with white-throated sparrows and they look like they have racing stripes on their heads they yes. will have a white throat those are throat the ones i didn't notice their throat but i noticed they had little racing stripes on their head and so i wasn't sure what which kind of sparrow they were but they're cuter than heck and they blend in with the mulch and the ground almost like they're big camouflaged and I see them when a, a rabbit just ran through, which is, I suppose, when you're the size of a sparrow, when you first see something running through, a rabbit is kind of frightening. And they just all run into the kind of the shrubbery. And just as you say, they just blend right in. They, and then they see, oh, it's a rabbit. And then they come back out. They, uh, some of them have white stripes on the head, and some will have tan stripes. Yes. There's, they're the same species. There's just some have uh, white and some have brown. And some studies have said if you're a brown-striped one, you want to marry a white-striped and vice versa. <laughs> and they're, they're just uh, really cool little birds, and they do that wonderful whistle. And the other one I'm seeing out there now is a Lincoln Sparrow. He uh, looks a little bit smaller, and he has kind of a grayish look to his face. And these are guys that are uh, 
sadly traveling through. They don't uh, hang around here with us. And uh, well, I have one other one is a song sparrow, and that is the one that nests here, and he is just singing like crazy this morning. So these little guys are just working the ground trying to find something to eat, and they're uh, traveling birds, so they need to get enough food in them that gives them enough energy so they can uh, hit the road, so to speak, or hit the air, I suppose. Do, in, uh, do you think they're do. eating slugs or slug larvae or or something like that? Because I have a, you know, last year I had such a problem with slugs, so I'm hoping that's what they're after, but me thinks <laughs> that's probably not the case. Yeah, I think these guys here are eating seeds for oh. the most part. Okay. And I have a brown thrasher out there, and he doesn't do the uh, the scratching with the feet so much. He takes his beak, and he's just tossing uh, leaves this way, and then he's tossing them that way, looking for something to eat under those leaves as well. Leaves provide a lot of food, not in the leaf itself, but what is under the leaves, so they can find a, a lot of good things to eat under there. I got a call early this morning uh, from somebody was uh, said there was a, a doe in her yard that she said looked like it was uh, oh on the way to becoming a mom and was wondering when fawns are born. And I think most fawns in this area would probably be born in May, probably middle May into early June. And they have a gestation period of 190 to 210 days. Uh, First-time mother usually has one fawn, and then twins are common and triplets. um, Not as common, but still fairly common with experienced mothers. And the weight of a fawn is five to eight pounds at birth, so kind of like a human baby. Mm -hmm. And for the first few weeks of their lives, fawns will lie motionless on the ground when they're not nursing. And I have heard all my life, and I bet a lot of you kind listeners have, that fawns don't have a scent. Well, that's Mm -hmm. not completely true. I think it's not an overpowering odor. Uh, predators sometimes stumble over a fawn, but they do often find fawns by the smell of a baby deer. The spotted coats of fawns, that's the purpose is to help them hide from predators. And fawns are precocial, meaning they're able to walk within a few hours after birth. In rainfall, as you might expect, can be kind of hard on a little fawn. If you're out there, it's not good to be soaked. So uh, most If you find a fawn, I'm going to say pretty much all of them, its mother is usually nearby, even if you don't see her. Mm -hmm. She's there somewhere, and uh, so just leave the fawn be. And, again, the only time you should uh, interrupt anything is maybe if you saw the the mother run over by a car or something when the fawns were with her, and that would be... We, a sad thing. When we were growing up at the farm, a really sad thing. My dad, you know, we had a hay bind. It was uh, one that you was uh, self-contained, so it didn't, you know, you didn't pull it with a tractor to cut the hay. Well, my dad, uh, of course, when you're cutting hay, the hay's thick and everything. He actually, with the hay bind, ran in um, to baby twin baby fawns, and and of course, oh. ki- killed one of them, but not the other. And he, so he wasn't sure if he should leave the baby, if the mother would come back or not. Oh. I think he did end up, but I mean, that was really. He felt so bad because he just couldn't see it because they were just hunkered down and, you know, rolled in their little kind of a little area that they they had made to to hide themselves the best they could. So, yeah, that was really sad. Oh, man.
man, that would be, yeah, because I would uh, hit them with mowers. I'd hit oh. pheasants and ducks sometimes, and it just bothered me forever. I talked to a guy who hit a, a bear with his combine. Oh. <clears throat> so that would be something. I'm sure he probably put it in an insurance claim, uh, calling your local farm agent and saying, yeah, I just hit a bear with my combine. So that would be a, a, an interesting. Uh, the claims guy probably likes stuff like that. It's a little bit different than something else <laughs> to look at instead of, oh, you hit a, you hit a Rock deer or, or something. something. <laughs> or, yeah, you hit another car or something. <laughs> I got a nice note from uh, buddy Tim Scott, and it's from Live Science, and it's talking about peacock spiders. And if you've ever watched many nature shows, you've probably seen a peacock spider. And it says in live science that peacock spiders are known for their luminous badonkadonks. What? I don't think that's a scientific <laughs> term. Yeah, <laughs> a badonkadonk. What's a badonkadonk? <laughs> I think it's like the rear end, oh, I think, and it's okay. probably in some uh, music that we hear, but that's, it's also in life science. And it, males use these to um, dazzle potential mates. Uh, they do these sexy spider courtship dances, and scientists have discovered 85 species of peacock spiders since the late 1800s, and each one is decked out in the unique pattern of iridescent scales. And uh, some researchers have called them the world's smallest rainbows. And now there's an entomologist with Museums Victoria in Australia has described seven brand new species of peacock spiders. And it's mainly because of citizen scientists that have sent in photos. And all but one of these live in Australia. The other one was discovered in China. And... I, I'm going to go with Muratus constellatus, which sounds wrong, but that's the way I'm going to go. And the new one they've named in honor of a twinkling blue and yellow heavens in Vincent van Gogh's iconic painting, The Starry Night. So it's pretty pretty cool. Uh, John from New Alm asks, when does a joke become a dad joke? And this kind of, <laughs> it really hits at home, Karen, because I am a dad and and we're obligated but to tell dad jokes i mean that's just in the nice thing about dad jokes is we can tell them over and over and over again because they're dad jokes and john said it's a joke becomes a dad joke when it's full grown yeah and <laughs> g-r-o-a-n and then yeah uh, versus w g-r-o-w-n yeah, good one yeah yep. thanks john <laughs> and it's uh yeah <laughs> it's uh, very appropriate there. Uh, Lugene Ingham of Hayward said chickadees have been fussing with the windows, driving our indoor cats crazy, and that's uh, good aerobics. Uh, Donna Swenson of Wasika saw a green heron. Uh, Gunnar Berg from Albert Lee said uh, saw some yellow rumps, ruby crown kinglets, a few raptors overhead saw an osprey, but he said, boy, it was a kinglet day, lots of them, and white-throated sparrows. Paul Berg of Odin sent me a photo of an injured Eurasian collared dove and asked what to do. And we had a, a lengthy conversation, if that's, I think they're conversations when you do them by texts and things back and forth. Sure. And I gave Paul the number of the uh, 
Wildlife Rehabilitation Center in Roseville, Minnesota, and Paul drove it all the way up there. Now, I think that's an essential trip, but I, I really do. And it, I think Paul was just ready to get out of the house and maybe out of Odin for a day just to drive. I don't know that he stopped anywhere other than there, but he just wanted to, to get out, and he did a nice thing. Uh, Jody Bollinger of Albert Lee said, uh, was asking how to identify wood ducks in flight wood ducks jody are really fast flyers and often in pairs with a straight direct patterns and they make uh, the females make uh, like a weep and the males do a zeet and they often do that when they're in flight hey boy you're talking don't before you go on and talking about wood ducks i just got a text from our friend don in cannon falls he says hi karen and al i have a female wood duck in my back yard that made a nest in a dead cottonwood tree 30 feet up the nearest water is a mile away is that too far or can it live in the forest thanks from don in cannon falls hey don great to hear from you and uh, yeah i just got a question from somebody saying how far can wood ducks uh, nest from water and uh, easily a mile so it's incredible they'll jump out uh, had an aunt that lived right in a city, and she was so oh, it had to be a mile from water, and she would see them jump out. Uh, everybody's so happy to see that happen once, and she saw it a number of times, and she said they walked across all these streets and away they went to water. So, it, yeah, that's really cool. And I, Don, I hope you get to see them jump out. That would be just the, the neatest thing. Uh, Linda. Sparling said she was at the Armstrong Restoration Project. That'd be in the northeast corner of Steele County. And she saw a pair of two, a pair of two, it would be a pair, I suppose, of eared grebes close to shore. And it was her first visit to the project and was impressed at the size. Great variety of ducks. She said good habitat for shorebirds. She saw greater and lesser yellow legs. And TJ, Tom Jessen from Medelia, found a Blanding's turtle, so that was uh, pretty neat. And you found a, 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 a really cool insect. I know a lot of people don't get very excited when they see bumblebees, but a rusty-patched bumblebee. I was so thrilled because... I I received a grant, I think I've talked to you about this, from uh, a program called um, Lawns to Legumes, where you try and create more habitat for such pollinators like the rusty patch bumblebee because it's becoming extinct, and it's on the extinct list, I believe. Well, or becoming extinct, so it's not extinct yet. But when I was working in the Hosta Garden, where I was talking about my little sparrows being active, there was a lot of, you know, old dried... uh, vegetation from you know the winter before and my my mulch etc and all of a sudden on my I heard a and looked on my finger and it was on my glove because I wear gloves when I'm working in the garden and I looked and I thought I've never seen anything and it had that beautiful rusty colored patch on its back and it stayed on I think I must have jarred it and or something because it was kind of like just staying on my finger and I ran in the house and she says Jeff I think I have a rusty patch bumblebee so I said could you quick google it so we googled <laughs> it and we compared and sure enough and I, I had never seen one before so I was so excited and 
realized that, you know, just by having all these early pollinators and things in my garden, leaving some of the vegetation that they live in the hollows of, of you know, old stems and things like that, that that provides habitat for them. So it was in the ground because I guess they kind of like to live in the ground and by the dirt around some of my hostas. So, yeah, that was I was just thrilled. It really made my day. They are uh, really neat. They they're like uh, like other bumblebees. They live in small colonies, and so you have a single queen and then female workers. And they have entirely black heads, but the workers and the males have rusty reddish patch yes. that's centrally located on the back. And they once occupied grasslands and tall grass prairies of the Midwest and Northeast, but. You know, most of those grasslands and prairies have been lost, degraded, or fragmented, and converted to other uses. These guys need areas that provide nectar and pollen from flowers. Nesting sites, as you mentioned, underground, abandoned rodent cavities, clumps of grass, and then overwintering sites in undisturbed soil for the hibernating queens. So that's, that is really, uh, that is very cool that you got to see that. Uh, Cindy Drill of North Mankato said a few times in the last week, my husband and I had seen a pair of Cooper's hawks doing lazy circles over the area, at least once being hazed by crows. I was doing a little transplanting of perennials and heard a hawk call out just as the rain was starting. I happened to look at the right spot and discovered they have a nest on our block. It's on the opposite side from us, almost at the end of the street. But until leaves fill in, I can get a look at it from the back of our yard. Something new to keep my eye on, funny but true, I have a Nanday Conyer, and he does an imitation of a person laughing that sounds identical to the Cooper's call. Hmm. Uh, Carol Schumacher. Carol lives in Winona, said a house wren was singing away, a purple martin was singing a song different from his chew call. At home I heard a thud, a bird hitting a window. I started out stopping dead in my tracks. A Lincoln sparrow perched on the deck railing, only to take off hitting the window again, finally headed to the right direction. And somebody sent me a photo of this big nest and uh, it was in a, a vent pipe, and I said, oh, it's got to be a starling or a house sparrow because it's too early for house wrens, only, you know, it isn't too early for house wrens. Every day is blur's day. So <laughs> I, I told them that it was it was just too early. It's not. It's just I can't believe it's this late in April already. So, uh, Carol Lang of Albert Lee saw a Baltimore Oriole. So, folks that uh, feed them, you might want to get that equipment ready and out if you haven't already. Leanne Jubelin sent me a photo of a baby great horned owl that was on the ground, and they made a nest out of uh, one of those plastic milk crates to put it in up on a tree, and so far it's working out well. The uh, mother's coming down and feeding it. Uh, Brad Baldwin of Wyndham in Jackson County saw 35 ibises. I don't think any of them he saw were of the glossy ibis species. Nels Thompson uh, saw an ibis in the marsh in Steele County, and the marsh is south of Owatonna on County Road 45, about six miles, I'm guessing that would be. Uh, Neil Bat of Heartland saw a turkey nest alongside a shed, a busy place. I'm thinking it's just depending on Neil to protect it as it's going through this whole process of having young. 
Uh, a caller said, uh, left a message, no name, said, how far apart are the eggs of a bald eagle laid? Hmm. Each egg is about three days apart, and then incubation begins with the laying of the first egg. So that's why we get bald eagles of all different sizes when they come out of there, and it can be kind of tough on the young ones sometimes. When do owls nest? Well, boy, we have... What could we see? If we were the luckiest of persons, we could see 12 species of owls in Minnesota. There's barn, bard, boreal, burrowing, great gray, great horned, northern hawk, long-eared, saw-wet, eastern screech, short-eared, and snowy. I think that's 12. We have three common ones that I'll mention when they nest. Great horned owls nest in January into early March. Barred owls begin nesting in March and then into August. And eastern screech owls nest probably March into mid-August. So those are the the three that we're most likely to see and maybe uh, see young of. So their owls are are really great. I just I love seeing them. You know, if I was a, a rabbit or something like that, I wouldn't be really overly excited. Well, I would be overly excited. I wouldn't be happy at all to see one. <laughs> so it's uh, it's one of those deals. A an American Birding Association in their magazine. There was a story by Mel Goff of Colorado who to see every state bird in its state. So he said, anyhow, there were reports of loon sightings at State Line Lake in Emmons, a small town on the Minnesota-Iowa border. We drove through a lot of rain along the way, but the morning of May 22, 2018, offered sunshine, warm temperatures, and a migration fallout at Gateway Park in Emmons. In our morning at the park, we recorded over 60 species. The trees and shrubs on the park held more than a dozen warbler species, including a beautiful Connecticut warbler, a life bird for us. And in the aftermath of that rare warbler, an afterthought, a common loon on the lake. So in his... uh, he, he has seen all 50, but his uh, common loon was right right near us, Emmons. I've been at Gateway Park. It's uh, State Line Lake down there. So that was that was pretty cool to read about that. It was just like, uh, like I knew the loon almost when he was talking about that. And I'm seeing some loons on uh, several of the lakes around here, and it's, it's kind of kind of, well, it's beyond kind of neat. It's just really, really neat to see all these. I hope everyone is is being well. Karen, you and yours are doing well, everyone? We are. We're, you know, Jeff is teaching his chemistry classes online from home, so that's different, and the boys are taking their school classes online from home, so that's different. You know, they're doing a lot more what I would call common sense learning cooking and and doing things uh that where it's hands-on sort of like you did when you were growing up in the country the old country school where they had to do a lot of the things and that weren't done for them so it's a it's a different style of learning and i'm here at kmsu every day and and yeah we're we're doing okay you and gail are doing well staying healthy 
Yeah, Ham, I'm I'm gonna visit the, the clinic so I'm gonna we're gonna actually I think eat out, maybe go through a drive through and oh. then head out to the state park. Uh, we're doing that on Thursday, so we're looking forward to that because I haven't, I still won't be in a store. I haven't been in a store since March fifteenth. Although wow. I did, I did fill Gail's car with gas, which was uh, quite an experience there. Did and, uh, you wear gloves when you not, did it? I didn't, but oh. I, I doused. I took a shower in uh, hand sanitizer ah. right after I, I <laughs> okay. pumped the gas, okay. and uh, had uh, uh, you know I knew everybody at the pumps. It was kind of scary. It was in New Richland, so we had a nice talk, and we were from pump to pump to pump to pump away. So it worked out pretty well. But who'd ever thought it would be an odd experience? Just pumping gas uh, and it went ding ding and it was done and i said that can't possibly be true and I, it was eight dollars and something I yes thought. it's a i <laughs> filled my something broken i filled my car for under twenty dollars for the first time and since i don't remember when and i thought wow and then you know if you get those coupons from the grocery stores uh a friend of mine filled her car for like 29 cents or something because she had all the coupons and things wow. added to it and it was like oh wow this is like the very good old days Gail has one of those cars where we have to dip out gas every so often to keep it from overflowing because it, it doesn't burn enough fuel. Oh. It just keeps, I think it grows its own fuel. <laughs> I would like to end, folks, with a real quick, please, everybody stay well, a quick story about Hadakal. A friend said their grandchild, the baby, I won't repeat the name, but it was re- it was an odd name. It just uh, I just thought, wow. And then I thought, well, Hadakal would be a good name for a baby. And I bet a lot of folks have never heard of Hadakal. It's creator <laughs> Dudley LeBlanc of Louisiana ran the company from 1945 to 1951. When asked the name's origin, Hadakal, he said, well, I had to call it something. Had a call was everywhere: radio, billboards, newspapers, magazines, pharmacies, even liquor stores. Ads for this wonder elixir weren't necessarily fact-based. One was two months ago. I couldn't read nor write. I took four bottles of Had a Call, and now I'm teaching school. Jerry Lee Lewis sang the Had a Call Boogie. The patent medicine, some might call it snake oil, was a mixture of vitamins B1, B2, iron, calcium, niacin, honey, phosphorus, and 12% alcohol. There was the key to its success. They left the mistakes in. It was advertised as a cure for high blood pressure, ulcers, strokes, asthma, arthritis, diabetes, pneumonia, anemia, cancer, epilepsy, gallstones, heart trouble, and hay fever. On the TV show You Bet Your Life, Groucho Marx asked LeBlanc what Hadacol was good for, and LeBlanc said it was good for $5 million for me last year. It went bankrupt shortly after LeBlanc sold it. Maybe it wouldn't make a good name. Thanks everyone for listening. Uh, Heartland is still well worth driving past. Thank you, Karen, as always. Uh, we we all appreciate you. Well, thank you so much. And since you mentioned that, I'm going to play that Jerry Lee Lewis had a call boogie. Thanks for that idea. Have a good one, Al. It's a cool song. All right. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.
There you go. Jerry Lee Lewis with the Had a Call Boogie going on, what Al was talking about. The Cure All Medicine Had a Call. It is 1037, and you are listening to a Minnesota Morning on KMSU Radio. Thanks for joining me. It's always great to have you on with KMSU.